0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: So if I have this fear, again, we went we talked about fear of failure. If I have this fear of uh, stressful activities, of, of anxiety, et cetera, then it's going to be debilitative. Like my hormonal profile will shift in a negative direction, right? And why does that happen? Because the body, right, your mind is a pretty smart thing. Your brain is a pretty remarkable thing. It thinks, okay, like I'm getting anxious. Like I'm about to be in a bad spot. I got to prepare for this, right? So it's the mindset. But on the other hand, if you see stress as a way to grow, as a way that your body is preparing to perform, then what happens is, yeah, you're still got a little bit of that anxiety and anxiousness, but what happens is it becomes a positive. An example I, I always like to give in an athletic standpoint is think about like the best performances. Like You don't see them at practice, right? You don't see records being broken, you know, when you're doing nothing and it's just you and your coach at practice. You see them during the big competitions, the big games when people step up. And the reason people are able to step up is because that that anxiety, that stress gives you an extra boost in performance if it lets you do it.
0: Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Steve, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, so I came across your work by uh, way of Ryan Holiday's newsletter, who mentioned where he mentioned your book Peak Performance, and uh, as I was just saying before we hit record here, easily one of the best books on the subject of peak performance that I have come across uh, in all the time I've been doing this research about this subject. But before we get there, uh, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you in a part of in high school, and what impact did that end up having on your life?
1: Oh man! Um, so as a, as a high school student, I was kind of a clueless uh, running nerd, and what I mean by that is my entire like high school career was was consumed by running. So I was on the cross country and track team, right? And anything outside of that that world just didn't exist i mean my my uh dad's an orthodontist my mom's a school teacher um so education was really big to them i have an older brother who was one of the tops in his class in high school and college so it was really pushed towards us but if you ask them about me during that time period it was it was all running and everything else was just put to the Wayside. Mm-hmm. I mean it was <laughs> the kind of uh example I like to use is I would go to bed at nine thirty or ten o'clock at latest, regardless of what anything else was going on. Mm-hmm. And the only reason was that is because I lived in Texas and we'd have practice at six thirty or seven in the morning for our runs, because uh-huh. it's always hot here. So I was infamous as a senior in high school for as the kid who would leave like the homecoming dance or the prom uh, dance early at 10 o'clock or 9 30 because it was up oh, Steve has to go and everybody just kind of knew that and accepted that and probably thought it was really weird um, obviously but at that time it was just completely normal to me.
2: Mm-hmm. So walk me through kind of um, from there to sort of what else happened after that, uh, because I know it it was a really informative part of your life and and kind of led you down this path of studying peak performance.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I I guess the uh, long, long story is kind of this is I was a I was a high school running phenom. So. When I entered uh, entered high school and joined the cross country and track team, I was a soccer player before that. Um, but I really took off my freshman year and ran one of the uh, top times in the nation in the mile for for a freshman that year. And I remember my high school coach pulling me aside and said, "Steve, like you can be great at this." But to be great at this, like you have to choose. You need to stop soccer. You need to like stop doing the other stuff, and you just need to go go all in essentially on this. And I was clueless. I thought, oh, great, this is awesome. Like I'm good. Like I can be really great at this. Mm-hmm. And that really started this journey towards um, trying to be as as fast as I could be. Mm-hmm. And you know, it came really easy at first. And if you look at my high school career, by the time I graduated. Um, I had run, uh, my senior year I was the fastest um, high schooler in the nation. I was the third, I think third or fourth fastest um, under 20 runner in the world. Um, I'd run the sixth fastest all time at that at, at that point high school mile ever. So I was, I was really, really good. Um, and I ran at, you know, the peak of it was probably, and we talk about this in the book a little bit, is I ran at a professional track meet called uh, the Prefontaine Classic. And if anyone who follows uh, track, the Pre Classic is the largest professional meet um, in the country. It's one of the biggest in the world, most celebrated in the world. Like all the top sprinters, distance runners, everybody who's in track like shows up. So I ran the mile there against, I think it was 15 or 16 other professional uh, athletes, professional runners, and I had people in the race who were, you know, Olympic medalists, the second fastest um, miler uh, of all time in history, and just some really, really phenomenal athletes, and I got thrown in there as a high schooler. And that's where I ran the, the fastest time I, that I did and and beat a couple guys who were like NCAA champions and U S national champions. So I, I finished that race ran four Oh one for a mile. So just missed this like magic barrier of going sub four minutes in the mile. And I remember initially being, you know, disappointed because I came so so close and that was you know one of the big goals to knock off but it, in my head i i remember looking up in the stadium and you've got you know 20,000 people there watching you and it's on NBC live and the cameras on you and it, in my head i'm like no this is awesome this is amazing like i should exp- i should appreciate this because it's only the start mm-hmm. and i think and i think that is where my story really begins in the sense that I thought like, okay, I am here. I'm on top of the world in my head. I'm thinking, all right, Olympics, Olympic medals. Like this is going to be my career. I'm just going to run and I don't have to worry about anything else. And that was, that was what I wanted at that point because my, my vision was so narrow um, that it was the only thing that, that mattered um, Mm. at that point in my life. So Those were kind of the kinds of things that I were thinking and and flash forward a couple years and my college career was a disaster, um, to put lightly. Um, You know, post-collegiately I tried to run again, tried to run really fast and my mile best still sits as what I ran as an 18 year old kid that summer. And it wasn't, and the thing that defined it is, it wasn't for lack of trying, it was almost because I tried too hard and what i mean by that is i thought this is how i got good so to get to the next level i have to increase that as 2x or 3x and give more effort because i was fully bought into the, the almost myth that if i work hard enough then i'm gonna accomplish anything that i want to so i just went head first into work and my essential burnout from running um, and never accomplishing my goals and all that stuff led me into coaching and then ultimately led into this exploration of, of the book, um, which is, it, is it possible to reach that level and higher levels of, of excellence without suffering the burnout, um, you know, the fatigue and all those other nasty things that can come with it? Mm. okay so many questions from that Um,
2: (laughs) i am i'm curious about the relationship with uh your coach you know because i had a very sort of similar experience with ninth grade band where a band director in seventh grade pulled me aside and he said you're going to make all-state band one day and i missed all-state band by one chair as a freshman in texas of all places oh wow Uh, and so and i remember being very defined by that goal for the better part of seventh eighth ninth grade and uh you know, apparently, it was a big deal to make. You know, miss all state by one chair as a freshman was considered an accomplishment, which I considered a massive failure. Um, so, two questions come from this. One, tell me about the relationship with your coach. Um, what impact that ended up having on your life? What role coaches do actually play you as a coach uh, now? And also, when you've been defined by something for so long, um, and you don't, it, you know, it doesn't end up becoming the thing that becomes your life. How do you resolve that sort of loss of identity?
1: Yeah, those are really good questions. I, I mean, I guess to start with, my relationship with my coach was was really good. Um, I had a I had a high school coach who cared. Um, it was actually funny because he he was kind of a sprint based, so speed based coach at first, and then he like took over the cross country team, um, and it corresponded to me, who was more like a middle and long distance runner. So he was really learning at the same time as coaching to a lot of degrees. So we were we were really almost. On this comparable journey of of trying to figure out things that worked um, to get me faster, and he was trying to learn how to do it. Um, but I think that relationship to a coach um, can either be the greatest or the or <laughs> the greatest experience of your life, or something that that almost haunts you, depending on how how it goes. In my case, I was lucky in that I had someone who who cared, and I think regardless of the performance aspects, like having that person. Who influenced my life in a positive way, and was there when things went bad, and was there when I wasn't reaching my goals, um, taught me way more as as a person than any any class I ever attended, right, or any guidance that I ever got. And I think that's whether it's athletics, academics, um, music. Whenever you have someone who is coaching you. What I always tell my my uh, athletes now is that I'm gonna see you. Um, I'm gonna see you at your highest highs and your lowest lows, right? You can't fake the emotion that comes with missing all state band by one place, right? Mm. You can't fake the emotion that comes with, like, you know, missing the state meet in track or whatever it is. Like, it's just raw. It's just there. Your professors, your teachers, even to some degrees, your parents in a lot of ways, like, you're going to put on a facade and you're going to hide that. Right. And you're not going to let them see that this matters as much or that this emotional expression, they're never going to see it all. But in an aspect where you're you're getting to see as a coach all these raw experiences, it gives us great responsibility to um, channel that and to make sure that athletes learn um, from these experiences, so I think in a lot of ways, what again, regardless of what it is you're coaching or teaching, is your responsibility is greater than than almost anyone in terms of uh, a kid's development. So I, I think that's on the coaching side, and then the other question you asked there is on the loss of identity, and I think this is a subject that isn't covered enough. So. No one really talks about what happens after your sport is done or what happens after you were, you know, all state banned and then you go off to college and you're no longer able to play that instrument or what happens when, you know, your identity, identity gets taken away. And of everything that I've had to deal with in life, that was probably the biggest struggle because as you probably got from my story, like I was all in obsessed on running um, through high school and through college. And when everybody identifies you as that, it becomes like your sole soul identity, right? Your sole purpose almost. So I'd walk around and even if I hadn't seen, you know, a friend in four or five years, the one thing they'd remember was, hey, Steve, you're the runner, Right. If I met new people who kind of knew who I was, Steve, the runner. And that's great when it's going really well. All right. Because you're like, oh, yeah, great. You know me like I'm the runner. Cool. Um, All that's going going around. But it really eats at you when it's not right. When that identity is almost stolen from you and you no longer have this this like competency to hang your hat on. And if, if you know anything about like psychology and that stuff, you look at self-determination theory and you look at, okay, what are these things that actually matter? What are our basic human needs? And one of those is like competency, right? Um, and I think what happens and what happened to me is like I almost had this like crisis of, of uh, internal story or internal narrative. Right. Up until up until I started to perform really poorly, like my life had this like continual arc to it. Right. And then once that arc is disrupted, now it's like I'm a person without a beginning, middle, and and end that I can connect with. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it put me on this loss and on this search of like, okay. If I'm not a runner, if I'm not identifying myself solely as this, like who am I and what what am I supposed to do? And for myself, as at that period of time, probably 19 to 21 year old, like it, I I don't think I had like the the capacity. Or the the ability to um, to sort through that as well as I should have at that time, because it's not something that is ever talked about, ever discussed. So it led to a lot of like wrong turns, a lot of you know, a lot of just false pressure on myself, and and to try and like meander through the woods blind almost, and come out on the other side with with some sort of identity intact. So it was a. It's, <laughs> to put it very shortly and bluntly, you know, it sucks.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: did you, what, where was it, the, the turning point at which you finally let go of it? Like, was there a point at which it finally stopped having the sting that it does? Or do you still feel it today?
1: You know, it takes a long while. And, I, and what I would say is it's never like, it's never just one moment where it's like, oh, it's gone. Like, I am now this instead. It's this continuum, this process, right? And um, over years, it's a process over years of almost, like, letting go of that. And more than letting go, it's, like, coming to terms with that. Mm -hmm. And, like, weaving that that past identity into your current narrative and your current story, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, for me, the real kind of turning point on my journey towards figuring it out was actually, like, giving back. So, uh, whenever you're pursuing something, whether it's running or academics or music or art, whatever it is, whenever you're pursuing something with almost reckless abandon to try and be really good at it, um, it's almost inherently a selfish uh, proposition. Like, it's very selfish of me to um, put running first in my life through those years. I mean, if you ask my my parents and my brothers and my sister, they're like, they hate it at times because... You think of it, we'd go on vacation, right? And we'd go on a road trip and, you know, we'd have to stop and I would go run nine miles where, well, <laughs> m- well, my parents, you know, filled up with gas and stuff like that. And it would, it would annoy everybody else. But in my head, I'm thinking like, oh, this is just what I have to do. Like, I'm not going to skip a day of running because we're going on a road trip. Like, I have to get this done. Yeah. Um, But it's a very selfish proposition. And I think... What finally got me out of this is, like, to take my experience, and at first it was through, like, volunteer coaching and saying, like, okay, here's where I went wrong, or, like, here's the lessons I learned, and let's try and make sure that this next generation, these other kids, like, learn from that and don't have to go through that, and I think... That, that that's uh, whether it's from a coaching aspect or whether it's from writing now mm-hmm. it's the rest of my life has kind of been defined of like um of making sense of that but also like figuring out all right here is my story here's my way but is is there is there a way we can do this without going through some of the pitfalls and identity crisis that that I kind of did.
2: So uh, I want to talk uh, briefly about the relationship with your parents, and I'm really glad you brought them up because, you know, a lot of parents are listening to this. And I think we live in a world that has almost obsessive uh Focus on peak performance and productivity. I mean, we glorify the stories of successful entrepreneurs. I mean, what do we do here at Unmistakable Creative? We take people's stories like yours and we you kind of shine a spotlight on people who appear superhuman in, in so many ways. Um, so, for parents who are listening, um, what would you what would you tell them? And, and you know, like, what was this dynamic like with your parents outside of driving them crazy with these <laughs> nine mile runs?
1: Yeah. You know, parents, parents have, and they know this, like you have a great power and responsibility. It's just like coach. But I I think the flip side of it is, and and what I can say now having, uh, you know, I've spent time coaching in the collegiate system. So I get, you know, 18 to 22 year olds who I, I get to work with and develop and all that stuff. And, And what I see is that Their parents should have empathy towards their kid performing and going after something to a high degree right when you're looking at people who choose to go down this path like people like you or i or the people who listen to this podcast who are trying to be more productive motivation most of the times isn't the issue right um most of the time it's like supporting and almost holding people back from doing dumb things. Right. And what I mean by that is like, if I work with someone who's really good with a runner now, my job, even if they're trying to make the Olympics, like my job isn't to necessarily push them forward. It's to guide them in a productive way that is sustainable and almost hold them back at certain points from doing the wrong things. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and as a parent, your job is to ingrain good behaviors, but also ingrain good good mindsets. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is quite quite frankly, like most of the problems that you see with high achieving students coming into college or even afterwards, is a lot of their psychological stuff issues can be tied to relationships with parents. Mm-hmm. So if a parent like desperately wants their kid to be the best the best at whatever it is what happens is the parent is super excited they start pushing their kid they might even not know it they think they're being supportive but they're really pushing them and that could be from signing them up for you know music class every single day to get extra practice or taking them to every practice imaginable for soccer whatever it is like They think they're being supportive, but what actually happens is the kid is being sent a message that like, oh, my parent values this. They're invested in this, and if I let them down, I'm going to feel really, really bad. Right. And what happens over time is you see this cycle where the motivation and the kid shifts from I'm doing this activity because I really like it, enjoy it and want to be good at it to I'm doing this activity because I don't want to disappoint my parent. I don't want to, you know, fail because we've invested all this time, money, et cetera, et cetera, into this. And once you get into that fear of failure um, mindset, it just it, it's it's a bad place to be. It's just, it's not sustainable, I think, is the number one thing. But it also, what happens, and I see this all the time um, in, in athletes before a competition, right? So if you're lining up to do a race, you can tell the ones who, well, they're nervous because everyone's nervous. They're excited because they're getting an opportunity to do something that they enjoy to do, right? They enjoy competing, so they're doing that. And then you can see the other ones who are nervous as well, but they're nervous because their parent is sitting in the stands and they're afraid that if they perform poorly, that their parent is going to be disappointed. And then what happens is they just get scared and frightened every time they they enter a competition space because it becomes like, oh, what if I disappoint now? What if I fail? What if, what if I, you know, if my parent puts his head down and all that stuff and can't, you know, doesn't want to talk to me afterwards. And, and it's just sad to see because it's really hard to dig someone out of that. And it just gets like psychologically ingrained. So I think the message to parents is, it's actually a pretty simple one is, is, is watch what pressure you're putting on them. Right. And then watch what message you're delivering to them. Right. It's almost like, some of the mindset research that has been come out are you are you are you giving a message that they should um feel good about competing giving their effort seeing how much they can get out of it or are you giving a message that all that matters is like winning or losing and if you lose like i'm not going to be i'm not going to be happy with you (laughs) and i think to 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 finalize that point so i like to say is that when you look at at losing youth athletes for instance we don't lose athletes who might compete in their youth level and then just give up on sports and you know high school and beyond we don't lose them out at practice or out in the games what happens is most of the time we lose them on the car ride home so it's the parent who you know thinks he's doing a good job by saying like oh you know hey hey jimmy like you should have done this, 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 and this, and this. right? And if you would have done this, you would have performed better. Well, all the kid is getting is like, oh man, I disappointed my parent. Like, I, I didn't, you know, they don't approve of what I did. I screwed up, et cetera, et cetera. Am I saying not to ever critique them? No, I'm not saying that. Like, that's how you get better, right? But I'm saying there's a time and there's a place and there's a way to do it. And a lot of times what happens is we send that message when they're at their lowest low, like after a loss or after a poor performance. And, and if you look at the research, actually, there's some really interesting studies that I've looked at rugby players and they looked at delivering what message is delivered after a loss, like after a game loss. And if it's, hey, let's go through all the mistakes right after and, you know, critique you so that we, we, we can correct them next time. Or is it, hey... Like, that's all right. Like, let's pump you back up. If the coaches um, or parents went through the, the mistakes and critiqued, what happens is in male rugby players, their testosterone levels actually drop. Like in that moment, they decrease. And their cortisol levels, their stress hormones actually go up. And what happens is that that ratio of stress hormones to testosterone, which testosterone is kind of a you know a, a build-up anabolic hormone, um, what happens is the body's in a really bad space to recover and also learn and adapt when you're looking at those things. And what they actually did is they tied it where they could predict how a player would perform based on that change. Um, several games later or several days later in the next game. So those who got a critique in, like, a, uh, you know, your kind of high school football, you know, screaming at them, testosterone levels dropped. And then two days later at the next rugby game, they played horrible. Those who kind of got brought back up, testosterone levels increased, positive stuff. Um, two days later, they play a better game. And I think, well, that's you know, a, a simple study and example. I think the same thing holds true with, you know, parents talking to their kids and, and what message they send.
4: Planning for your next trip: Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more.
0: Visit
1: BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
4: Wow.
2: Well, let's do this. Um, You've mentioned the word sustainable multiple times uh, over the course of our conversation, which is what I know that the entire content of this book about is, is sustaining peak performance. So can you give us an overview of sort of all the chapters um, and each component of it and how we sustain peak performance in our lives, regardless of what the you know, thing that we're doing is, whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's uh, something athletic?
1: Sure. Definitely. And so so what we did is we set out and we looked and said, OK, I, you know, from my story, how how can we do this sustainable? So we s- went through, dug through the research, dug through performers at the highest level and multiple domains and tried to see what everyone did. And so and we kind of distilled those into um, a couple commonalities. And I think what the what those were is the first one we called the growth equation. <laughs> And what that means is the growth equation to us is stress plus rest equals growth. So regardless of what we're trying to get better at, we need to apply some sort of stress. We need to struggle with it. And by stress, I mean like, not like anxiety necessarily. I mean, let's train, let's do something with effort. Let's struggle with it. But the flip side of that is, we need rest to get better. So stress plus rest equals growth. If we don't have that rest component, we don't adapt and we don't get better. And that's where I think a lot of people miss out on is that we really emphasize the effort, the work, the productivity part, Mm -hmm. but we don't emphasize the flip side, which I didn't do as as a runner, is give yourself enough space to let that sink in like let that physical work adapt right we don't get better when we lift weights we get better when the muscle repairs after we've lifted weights and the same thing holds true with with mental activities right the brain doesn't get better while we're doing the maths the math homework for example it gets better when we go to sleep the brain kind of connects and um, does all its magical things and solidifies it into long-term memory right so that's number one is that 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 relationship with stress and rest. And then the, the, another, the second section we looked at, we called priming. And what this is really about is like optimizing your routine. And for each individual that we talked to, they all kind of had a routine to get them in a state to perform. And what was interesting about it is that the routines themselves, like there wasn't much commonality, really. There were some, you know, standard things. But what we learned is it's not about some magical routine like you hear in a lot of places. What is about is like owning the pattern, the habits to get you in the right space. So if I'm a writer, like what gets me in the right space to go, you know, knock out 5,000 words, whatever it is. And that routine is going to be different. Or what is the routine I get ready for a race or a, you know, a performance, um, out on the stage with, um, musicians, like make sure that you, you are intentionally putting yourself in a place to perform. And then the last part, which was one of the most interesting is that, um, all almost all great performers we talk to, all the research porn into, to really get the most out of yourself, you have to have a purpose. And it's not like those kind of like cliche core values that you might see in like, you know, business-esque speak. It's it's instead something that really drives and really means something to you. So it's actually really gotta matter, right? And, and what happens is if you have this purpose, this self-transcending purpose, you can reach levels of performance that just aren't capable when the motivation is something uh, lower like, um, you know, money or, or fame or just, you know, to benefit yourself.
2: Mm-hmm. Let's – Talk a bit more about the, the stress idea, because I, I love the idea of stress plus rest equals growth, and yet this is so counter to the way that we actually work in the world today, right? Uh, you know, it, like I, it, I had an idea for a blog post based on reading your book titled Why the Human Brain Was Not Designed to Work Eight Hours a Day, yet that's the standard structure in corporate America. Um, so I wanna ask you about two questions. One is how do you prevent stress from becoming debilitating and turning into anxiety? and two you know let's talk about you know uh rest in a bit more detail like you know it's funny to to ask a question like this but how do people rest effectively
1: (laughs) yeah well those are good questions and it's things i struggle with too because like we're constrained by our society right and and you're right like we weren't meant to work for you know eight hour days just go grind away and um and then stop and you know what's interesting I won't, I won't bore you with the details too much but you can trace the history of this almost um, to like the industrialization of and like the, the Henry Ford Model T version of, of work right because it's like oh this is how we get the most out of everybody productivity wise on the on the assembly line but, but for performance wise and for activities that that are more um, you know even physical but all more mentally demanding like we have now and like our knowledge economy um it just makes zero sense yet we still do it Uh so i think you know your first question was like how do you deal with the stress and not turn it into anxiety and i think there it comes back to what the research says on on mindsets right so there's some really good work out there that shows up how you appraise stress determines whether it's beneficial or negative, right? So if I have this fear again, we went we talked about fear of failure. If I have this fear of uh, stressful activities, of of anxiety, etc then it's going to be debilitative. Like my hormonal profile will shift in a negative direction, right? And why does that happen? Because the body, right, your mind is a pretty smart thing. Your brain is a pretty remarkable thing. It thinks, okay, like I'm getting anxious, like I'm about to be in a bad spot, I gotta prepare for this, right? So it's the mindset. But on the other hand, if you see stress as a way to grow, as a way that your body is preparing to perform, then what happens is, yeah, you're still got a little bit of that anxiety and anxiousness, but what happens is it becomes a positive. An example I I always like to give in an athletic standpoint is think about like the best performances. Like you don't see them at practice, right? you don 't see records being broken you know when you 're doing nothing, and it 's just you and your coach at practice. You see them during the big competitions, the big games when people step up and The reason people are able to step up is because that that anxiety that stress gives you an extra boost in performance if it lets you do it so what I always preach is this mindset shift is it's not anxiety. It's not those, those jitters that you're feeling aren't a negative. They are a positive in the sense that your body is telling you, hey, we're preparing for battle or we're preparing to perform or we're preparing to give our best on this speech in front of a thousand people that you're going to do like we need to release these hormones this adrenaline to get you ready because if we get have more adrenaline like your body and your mind is going to perform at a higher level it's almost like our own little uh our is almost giving us our own little shot of of coffee beforehand like shot of espresso right it's saying like all right this might feel, make you feel a little jittery, but it's going to help you stay awake and, and focused and, and ready to go. So take your shot of espresso and that's what our body is, is doing on a chemical standpoint. So it's really about that mindset. and I think the other thing that, that is really interesting and in tying to that is that oftentimes um, as coaches, teachers, you know uh, friends, we often give the wrong advice to, to people who are about to perform, right? So if I go up and you're about to go on stage and give a talk, if I say, hey, it's all right, man, just relax, just stay relaxed, what I'm doing, and the research backs this up, is by saying relax, the other person, like in their head, they get... Oh, he's telling me to relax because A, stress and anxiety is a negative thing. So I should try to push that away. And B, he's telling me I should relax because I must look anxious. I must not look confident. So you're sending almost this like subconscious internal negative message. So the the message you send instead is that of excitement is like, hey, you know, you've trained, you prepared for this, like you should be excited. You're ready to go, you know all those those positive things, right? And then on <laughs> the other other question you asked on, on rest is how do people rest is I think it seems like such a simple thing that and, and because of that we never we never um, we never put too much thought into it, right? Mm-hmm. So rest People think like, oh, I'm going to go home. I'm going to turn the TV on. I'm just going to sit there and maybe flip through Twitter on my phone or scroll through Facebook on my computer. And that's my rest. Like I'm turning off. Well, the reality is that's not really Recovery, right? Because your mind is still engaged. And if you're on Twitter or Facebook, you're getting like all these dopamine hits of seeing all the likes you got or the hearts or whatever it is now. Um, so your, your brain is engaged and it's not recovering. Like rest to us is taking both a, a mental and a, and a physical break. And a lot of times people only think of the physical standpoint. So if you look at the research, like what really, really works well is, you know not surprisingly is is like going for a walk in nature or even just going for a walk like going for a walk will hit will switch some of those hormonal profiles we talked about in terms of cortisol and testosterone um you know doing things like that doing things like reading a book or something where it's like you're Letting your body and your mind come down and off of whatever stressful thing you were you were uh, you were working on is what we need to look at. And it's not the the take my my mind on this mindless journey of, of perusing YouTube in the internet, right? It's actively recovering and doing stuff like that. And the last one I'll mention is that um, being social and being around friends is incredibly. Incredibly helpful in terms of rest and recovery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I talked to um, a coach who was a coach of a professional um, sports team in the U.S., and he said what we did post game is we switched from having, you know, having our players get their meals on the bus or on the plane. And if we did that, they'd be on their phone and they'd just be eating their 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 meal by themselves on their phone. And what we did is we switched it to like a team gathering right so phones were away and we're just having a good time decompressing talking about things and they measured again i'm going to come back to those hormonal profiles and you saw increased testosterone decreased cortisol better gameplay next time right because you gave people this social environment to kind of decompress go through their game a little bit in a non-threatening way so, you know, we said it in our book, but I think like happy hour can be great. As long as you're doing it, it's like leave the work away. Don't go to happy hour and have a bad time discussing all the office politics. Like get social, enjoy the conversation. And uh, that's a great form of recovery.
2: Hmm. I love that. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the devices piece because I I think it's such an important part of of how you recover uh, in the world today. And and we really it's almost maddening how problematic problematic it is.
1: Yeah, it's crazy, right? I mean, and I'm as guilty as uh, as anybody right i sure. have to actively think about it and i think the thing we have to realize with our devices is you know they're designed by really smart people um phds and the like to keep us engaged right <laughs> that's what they're designed to do yeah. like they want engagement so like i'm gonna lose that battle right because you know i'm just gonna mindlessly go through it so you've got to design your day you gotta you know almost foolproof things to be like all right you know device over here it's away from me during these times like it shouldn't be there because it is it just leaves you drained and unproductive mm. so
2: let's do this i want to talk briefly about routine um and i want to focus on one specific area of routine you know you guys did a lot of emphasis on environment and the role that it plays in routine and i'd love for you to expand on that and then we'll we'll wrap it up by talking about purpose and transcendence
1: sounds good to me yeah so um, the role the environment plays in routine is something that I think isn't, uh, isn't as well understood and isn't as well uh, publicized as some of the other core concepts of routine because it's, uh, it's been done to death a little bit. Um, but uh, what we found is there's this, there's this branch of psychology called ecological psychology that looks at how humans interact with their environment right and what what they found through a couple different research and theories is that like how you set up your environment can almost invite you to do actions right so it's almost like creating a habit but not not quite so if I set up if I'm going to write and I say all right I'm gonna write and I'm gonna do it every day at this time and I'm gonna set this desk over here and on the desk is going to be you know my copy mug or whatever it is my pen and it's going to have this and it's going to have this chair and that desk is only going to be for writing what happens is in the brain right if i walked over and walk near that desk and like just take a look at it the areas in my brain will that are like um get us ready for like writing right maybe there is related to you know using my hands or whatever have you they'll start to light up in anticipation of that almost as if it's like calling me inviting me to do that because if i just it's tied to that activity so cuz the brain what happens is the brain prepares before the action has taken place so if i go and i'm trying to shoot hoops like before i take the shot my brain has almost lit up in its head like the muscle program to shoot a basket right because it can't do it all after the fact it has to be anticipatory so what happens is we can take advantage of that and really set up our environment so that it calls us to be productive because what the reality is most of us right now set up our homes and uh, to call us to be unproductive right because think about it what is the center of of most people's living rooms or houses like the <laughs> big Television. TV right yeah. It's and the couch the nice comfy couch and, and there's a reason we all go to it after work or after we're tired and we're fatigued like we just get called to it and it's not necessarily really our fault it's just like that's that's the way the environment draws our brain to it so what we suggest a lot in the book is to rearrange that outcome right so set your environment up to call you towards being productive Right, to make it easy so that your brain says, Oh, I normally write there. I'm gonna go that. Or for my case, like, you know, now that I still run a little bit to stay in shape and try and get it in, um, get in the work around all the work that I do. Maybe it's like, hey, my running shoes are gonna be at the foot of, of my door. Or in other cases, if I know I wanna exercise when I come home, what I do is I put my shoes and, you know, my, um, exercise clothes, whatever it is, um, in the passenger seat of my car so that when I get in work, I'm like, Oh man, I should really go to the park and go for a run or go to a gym. Right. And and get some sort of work out. And I'm rigging my environment to work for me, not against me. And I think that's that's one of the biggest lessons that we can take away. Hmm.
2: Well, let's wrap it up by talking about this idea of purpose and transcendence. You know, I mean, I think we talk a lot about that and it's kind of a, a nebulous concept. And, I, you know, I always wonder, like, how do you find this? I, I, to me, it's one of those things I feel that I found through years of trial and error. There wasn't some sort of, hey, here's the formula for finding your purpose.
1: Yeah. You know, everybody wants like the one answer, right? Yeah. And and it's funny. I was talking... um Talking to uh, actually a couple athletes I I uh, coach earlier in the day, and they were talking about like love and and passion in terms of like oh is there one love for everyone? Is there one passion for everyone? And I think the same thing can be said about like purpose. Is there like one purpose? And we're on this myth, uh mythical journey to go find what it is is our purpose in life. And I think when we look at it in that sense, what happens is we're we're kind of limiting ourselves. And instead, we should take a mindset of like, all right, purpose comes from a good fit and an ability to develop it, right? And how am I going to find that? Then I have to explore my interests. And there might be things that, like, oh, this is really interesting to me. And it might never be like a passion. But if I explore enough interests, like, eventually I'm going to get to something that i am going to be passionate about and then i can develop into um, a greater and greater passion and i think the same goes to when you're looking at purpose and, and the way we kind of delineated it in the book is to really sit down and go through an exercise of deciding what actually matters to you right what are the core things that 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 means something in life that I seem to care about what are the things that really interest me that you know I would do in my off time I would do for free et cetera. Et cetera. what are those things that I'm really drawn to and then really have a, a kind of evaluation um, almost like dig and, and excavate why these things matter to you and, and in the book, we kind of go through this process a little bit more of like developing a purpose statement and all those things to remind you. But I, I think the simplistic version of it is like, you gotta find something that when the going gets tough, when you're really fatigued, when you know you don't want to uh, do the overtime at work and you really just wanna go home and quit, it's something that you can turn to that says, man, this, this is why I'm doing this. this is what it is. You know, we talked to a, this was, we mentioned them in the book, but not in this, this, uh, this realm. We talked to a drummer named Matt Billingsley, who's been a drummer, uh, a professional drummer for some of the uh, the biggest acts, music acts in the industry. And I was sitting there talking to him and I said, hey, like when you're in the middle of a drum set and you're playing in front of 50,000 people, And what happens is like you screw up, right? You miss, you miss a hit, miss a beat, whatever it is. Like, how do you get, how do you get reengaged? Or maybe you're really tired and you just keep missing things. And like, you are just thinking like, I'm, I'm not going to get through this set. Like, how do you make it through? And he says, well, now it's pretty simple. Like I sit there and say, all right, why am I doing this? My kids, like, my kids is my purpose at this point. Like I am doing this to provide for them in that in a financial sense, but also to set this example of like, Hey, if you want to be good at things, if you want to, you know, reach your goals, like you can do it and really turn to that thing that matters. And for him, it was his children and for others, it, it can be other, other things. Right. Hmm. Um, so it's really about finding that thing that you can turn to in in uh, the downtimes. Yeah. Wow. Uh,
2: well, this has been amazing, uh, really. I mean, you've packed it with a ton of valuable insight. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: <laughs> oh, that's... You know, I knew this question was coming, and I still don't have a good answer. Uh, I would say... I would say it's it's a couple things. I, I think unmistakable people uh, people who have that quality is they have a curiosity about themselves to push further to understand deeper. Um, and it's a natural curiosity. Is it's something that yes, they've developed, but it's something that is is pure and genuine, right? It's the the people who I remember having conversations with ten years down the road who made an impact on me are the people who are like just so into it, who just had this need to understand, to um to uh, pursue their mastery of their craft to a, a, a high degree, that it just like inspired me, right? Where I was saying like. You know, I know nothing about, I don't know, sushi making, right? But this, this guy I know, like that was his craft and I could sit there and I could listen to him for hours talking about something that I have zero idea and really zero interest about. But that passion, that curiosity, um, that drive to understand what it is at a very deep le- level, I think that's what makes someone uh, unmistakable. Awesome.
2: Um, well, this has been phenomenal. Where can people learn more about you, your work, and the book?
1: Sure. So I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Steve Magnus. That's uh, M-A-G-N-E-S-S. And uh, my own personal blog is Science of Running for running stuff. And then our book website is uh, peakperformancebook, um, net.